Here in verse 17, we have an invitation here in this passage in regards to joining the faithful. In fact, in these verses, we see here in the apostles' desire for, for the saints at Philippi to live faithfully. We see in verse 17 that, that, that admonition to join the faithful servants of Christ. In verses 18 and 19, we see a warning against those who do not serve Christ, those who are the enemies of the cross. And in verse 20 and 21, we find the believer's heavenly hope and heavenly citizenship. And, and then in verse four, in chapter 4, verse 1, we see once again a return to that, that invitation to stand fast in the Lord, to live faithfully for God. And so he begins verse 17 by addressing the brethren. Now, he's not talking to his national brethren, the Jews. That may have been the case in some places, but here... The church of Philippi is primarily a, a, a church made up of Jews and Gentiles that are brethren because they are brothers and sisters in Christ, aren't they? He addresses Christians, those who have trusted Christ as their Savior, those who have put their faith in him for salvation, have become children of God, and thereby, because of being rightly related to Jesus Christ, we become, as Christians, related to one another spiritually. We become brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he speaks to his brothers and sisters, his fellow believers, and he, and he invites them to join him. In fact, we really saw find here somewhat three directives in regards to this, this jumping on the faithful bus. We find him telling them to, to join, to follow, and also then to, to consider or to note those who walk faithfully as well. Now, Paul had just given to us, we've been studying his testimony in the first half of the chapter. He gave a testimony of his salvation in the first part up to about verse 9 or so, and then verse 10 and on, he's talked about his, his passion to be faithful. To, to grow in Christ-likeness and faithful service for his God. In fact, previously in the chapter, we saw he had been imprisoned for his faithfulness in being a witness, and yet he was trusting the Lord in spite of the circumstances he was in because his main concern is that the gospel was going forth. That was, that's what we see in, in this chapter. The good news of Jesus Christ was being preached, and that's what he rejoiced in. And so he, he tells, he encourages us to join him in following his example. And we've seen his example. In Philippians 1.21, we see Paul's wonderful testimony where he says, For to me to live is Christ. That wonderful few words that have such depth of meaning. To recognize that as Christians, to me to live is to live Christ. It's to share in his life and live for him in our daily lives. And then he goes on in verses 24 and 25 to mention the only reason for him to stay on the earth was to, to help others, to invest in others, to help others in their spiritual growth and development. Then as we jump over to chapter 2, where he encourages all of us to have the mind of Christ when it comes to sacrificial service, for living for the Lord and, and ministering to others, he mentioned in verse 17 that he was being poured out as an offering. He was, he was being poured out. That was giving his all in order to help others to know Jesus Christ. And then he sets before us the others in his missionary team, Timothy, who, who would seek the things of Christ and caring for others naturally. It was automatic for him. To, to care for others when it comes to their walk with Christ. At the end of the chapter, we saw Epaphroditus who, who didn't count the cost of serving Christ. And then we got to chapter 3, as I mentioned, where he, Paul expresses his passion to know Christ, and then, uh, then through verse 14 to press forward. In this one thing I do, he says, he wants to press forward for the cause of Christ and knowing him and serving him. And these are just some of the things we studied in this book. No doubt there was other things that the church at Philippi, these Philippian believers, had observed in the life of Paul as he serves Christ faithfully. And he says, 
follow me, join with me, go, come along, get on the bus in serving Christ faithfully because that should be what, how Christians ought to live. He put it this way in 1 Corinthians 1.11. He says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. And that's a good clarification, isn't it? He's, because we just read in the previous verses that Paul says, I'm not perfect yet. He recognized that he was still flawed. He was still growing in his faith. And so he clarifies this in 1 Corinthians 1.11 and says, imitate me as I follow Christ. He's obviously not asking us to, to imitate his flaws, but in his faith in Christ, his faithfulness to Christ, he says, join with me. Serve, serve with me together. And that's his desire in teaching the, in the, the Philippians, and that should really be the desire we have for one another. And along with that, then, he says to also then note others. Recognize others who are walking faithfully, who walk after the same pattern, he says here. The apostles were those who had seen Jesus Christ. Many of them had sat under his teaching. They're the ones who wrote the New Testament. Their, their teaching became the foundation and also the litmus test of truth in the New Testament. It was the teaching of Jesus passed on through the apostles that we have written before us here in in. In the New Testament. And so the apostles and prophets, we are told, laid that foundation. And, and Paul extends that here to beyond not only their teaching, but their manner of life. You see, you have us for a pattern. This is how a Christian should live. This is what a Christian should look like. This is a, how a Christian should serve Christ, he says. And there's others that you need to recognize as well. It reminded me of the verse in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, where it says, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. And here there's a general statement in Hebrews 13, 7, to consider those who have led and who have taught you the word of God, who, who, who follow their faith, considering the, the object of their faith, the outcome of their conduct, in other words, their faith in Christ. Kind of saying the same thing Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate others. And so the Bible teaches us then that God sends people into our lives that are meant to be an example to us. And meant to, show, meant to show us how to live by faith. But you know, sometimes the response is when we see a believer who maybe is fired up for Christ, who's serving Christ faithfully, who's serving Christ determinedly, sometimes that brings conviction in our lives. And what we'll do is we'll look at the flawed side of their lives and think, oh, who wants to be like them? And we write off the example God is sending. No, none of these writers are saying they're perfect. They're saying, follow me as I trust Christ, as, I, as we pursue Christ together. We're all flawed together. We're, we're growing together. We're serving together. But God knows how to send people into our lives to point us to Christ. That's the point here. It's God who sends people into our lives. We know it's, it's the great shepherd who sends under shepherds into our life to teach us and shepherd us in the word. That's, that's how he shepherds us. He teaches us, and he sends people to lead us. He sends people to be an example to us. He sends other believers to admonish us and edify us and lift us up because the believers are meant to live in a community of a family. And that a family effect should be, as Ephesians 4.16 says, to edify one another in love. But what we need to recognize is that it's God who orchestrates these things. God is the one who sends these people into our lives. God is the one who sends these leaders into our, into our lives. And the first thing you might consider is that's a serious responsibility, whether you're a leader or just another believer, wh whether, whether you're discipling someone. God wants to use our lives as a pattern to lift others up. Second thing, it's also a serious consideration for the sheep, 
those who are being exampled to, those who God is trying to use others to influence because we often don't think we need to be taught and we need to be led. That's one of the issues sometimes within the family of God is people who are unteachable and people that don't, they don't think they need to be led, especially, especially by that clown or this clown or another clown, as we might put it. We might fail to recognize that God in his sovereignty in our lives puts people before us to sometimes bring us an encouragement, sometimes to bring us conviction, to be an example, to lift us up, to comfort us, and so on. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as also you are doing. He wants them to continue. And so that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying you need to consider this example because God sent me to you and he sent me to you for a purpose to, to, to hear my teaching, to see my example, and you need to consider that as from God. That's what he says. It's not in de- deference to Paul. He said consider what God is doing through me and in me and take it as from him. That's the point here. And then consider others who are doing the same. You see, God has a design for us in our growth in grace. And we know the primary tool in growth is the, is the learning of the Word of God. We're to feed on the Word of God, to hear it taught, to learn about Him, to hear His words. God uses trials to give us spiritual exercise to put the Word of God into practice. But along the way, God communicates that often through other people, whether it's a teacher, whether it's a fellow believer. And so as a family, we come together whether corporately, officially, in, a, in respect to a schedule, or just in our own time to lift one another up. And that's how God we often see the faithfulness of God and the power of God. We see it at work in other people's lives. Now, Paul says this, in, in, to first of all, because he wants to set before him the good example, because in the next verse, he turns to the bad example, the wrong example, others who may affect them. In verses 18 and 19, he talks about many who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, this is harsh words, isn't it? This is not politically correct way of putting things here, but the Bible is direct, and and God is just identifying those who oppose the cross of Christ, who are enemies of the cross directly, calling them what they are. And so he tells us in verse 18, for many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, likely he's speaking of professing Christians, those within the Christian camp or within a religious church. Those may not be, they may or not may not be saved, but those who in some way claim to be religious or Christian, they have Bible speak and and seek to affect other many in the wrong way. But the the problem with them is that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. That's the key component here. They oppose the cross of Christ. They pervert the cross of Christ. And that's the good news that we, that we cling to as Christians, isn't it? Turn to me once again, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 15. And, and let's, let's be reminded this morning of the simplicity of the salvation message that God sends us before we consider further those who oppose it. Verse 3, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. He says, this is the good news. This is the gospel, the good news that I have, that I have delivered to you. And that's what the word gospel means. It means good news. Christ died for our sins, and that's great news because the Bible tells us sin separates us from God. When, when Adam and Eve 
way back in the garden who lived in a perfect existence and perfect harmony against God when they disobeyed God and ate the fruit, they became alienated from God and in essence set themselves up as enemies of God because they rebelled against him. And, and the Bible says the soul that sins, it shall die. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we recognize that when Adam and, before Adam and Eve ate that forbidden fruit, that God had told them, the day you eat, you're going to die. And of course, they didn't immediately tip over like Snow White, but they died to God and were facing an eternal death separated from God apart from God's intervention. And the good news then in that condition of mankind is that Christ came. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. He paid the penalty for our sins upon the cross in paying for sins past, present, and future. And that's why he said before he gave up the ghost, it is finished, which means paid in full. He paid the debt we owed to God so that God in turn could extend to us the forgiveness of sin and the assurance of eternal life. That's the simplicity of the message. And a person comes to know Jesus Christ by simply believing on what Christ has done for them on the cross. And the Philippian jailer said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now he may have heard them singing about the cross, talking about the cross, and he says, well, I, what, do I, what do I need to do to get saved? And the, the apostle said this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. The same for everyone. Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, not as a historical fact, but as a personal savior. We put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's the simplicity of the gospel. And what Paul is saying back in Philippians 3 is that there are many who walk in opposition to the cross of Christ. They're enemies of the cross. They're perverting that message. They're failing to teach the biblical message of salvation by faith alone through Christ alone. I recently heard a message by Matt Costello, who is the president of FEA as well as a pastor of a church. He mentions because of his um, organizational presence that he gets frequent calls from people in search of a Bible-believing church, these people that simply just teach the Bible verse by verse. He says they can't find them. And he says that's sad, but it's true. Finding a church that where the Bible is taught in its inerrancy as the inspired word of God. And even though, unfortunately today, those who claim to be Christian have a Christian label on their church often do not take the Bible literally any longer. They don't see it as inerrant any longer. Many of those organizations do not take a stand on moral issues such as abortion, marriage, and gender, and they often, in fact, let those philosophies of the day infiltrate their, their churches and even their pulpits. They don't take a stand in regards to science. They, put, they elevate science above the Bible and try to interpret the Bible in light of science instead of the other way around because let God be true and every man a liar. And God said he created the earth and it with the, in seven days with the word of his mouth. He meant what he said. Especially when he was the one person who was there. Who's given us a written record of that creation. And so there are many who deny today, they, they deny salvation because by grace alone, through faith alone, because they denied the word of God. And instead they introduce some form of works to salvation. You get to heaven by going through some rituals. You get to heaven by giving money. You get to heaven by doing good. When the Bible says repeatedly, verses such as Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith. And it's not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And that, those two verses alone make it crystal clear that man is saved not by his own efforts because he'll never boast before God. And the Bible uses that word that no man will ever boast before God that I got there on my own efforts, that I deserve heaven. 
and you owe me heaven, God, because I've been faithful, or I've done this, or I've done that, or jumped through this hoop, or gone through this ritual. We see that repeatedly in the scripture. But there are many, Paul says, and it's true today as it was then, who oppose that gospel message and, and, and insert works either in its place or along with the salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, making them enemies of the cross. And Paul says, I've repeated this often to you. I've told you often. And it's because maybe because of the many, but also because the warning needs to be heeded because there are many who are not grounded in the word of God, who do not know the Bible, who can often fall for the latest whim of the day. And we need to be reminded to go back to the Bible and say, what does God say? What does the Bible say in regard to salvation? And the, and the message is clear, and it is simple, is it not? Well, Paul says here, he, he tells them even weeping. Interesting here. He told you often, and I've told you even weeping. That this, this effort to, that contradicts the Scriptures brought tears to Paul's eyes. And I'm not sure if he was in tears for those who were teaching the error those who were caught up and embraced and were promoting salvation by works, or if he's crying for those who may have been affected and caught up and entangled by their false teaching. Or it's po possibly he could have brought tears to his eyes simply because our God and Savior was being maligned in the rejection of the love of the cross because when people try to add to salvation, they're saying the cross wasn't enough. Jesus really didn't pay it all. He paid some of it, but I got to do my part too. Some, for whatever the reason, and it may have been a combination of all three, or, or Paul says it brings tears to my eyes that there are those who reject and oppose the cross of Christ. Now we have to ask ourselves, who really is Paul referring to specifically in this, in this time? Because we like to interpret the Bible historically, or as well as literally. And some would, some would conjecture they were the legalizers, the Jews, from who were seeking to affect these new believers and tell them they had to keep the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, and specifically as well circumcision, along with faith in Christ in order to go to heaven. They weren't letting go of their works-based religion. In fact, they were trying to homogenize the two. It could have been them. It could have been the Gnostics who, who, were, who came to the forefront in the, in the days of the early church who believed that, that really that, self, that salvation comes, righteousness comes through higher knowledge and learning. That they were affecting the church as well. But generally, we know at least the enemies of the cross were those who would promote an anti-cross message. Let's look at a few passages. Let's go to Acts chapter 20, where we see Paul addresses this as well. So we get a little bit of a handle on what Paul is referring to. Now we know if we went back further to the life of the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus warned his disciples. If you've been reading with your scripture reading, you've come across that passage I think in Acts, Matthew 16 or 17, wherever it was, where he warns his disciples about the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Well, the Pharisees and Sadducees were the religious leaders of the day who promoted salvation by works. And he warned his disciples about their teaching, to beware of it, beware of their teaching, because it was false. Well, here we jump to the life of the apostle in Acts chapter 20. And he's here he's speaking to the leaders of the church at Ephesus, the elders of the church at Ephesus, Ephesus, excuse me. And in verse 25, he says this, And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. He's 
might ask, by the way, what does he mean by that? Well, he says that I, that I have, he says in the next verse, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, I preach the truth. I'm not guilty of withholding the truth from you. I've taught you the whole counsel of God. Verse 28, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among who, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will arise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for the three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So here in this parting message to the leaders of the church at Ephesus, the shepherds, the overseers, they're called, of the church at Ephesus, he warns them about, about false teachers in, in verses 29 and 30. He says, after my departing, savage wolves will come in. Those who will come from the outside will come into the church, not sparing the flock. And then verse 30, he says, also from among yourselves. He warns them that even from among yourselves, within the, within the church, the greater church at large, there'll be those who will come speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. And it's interesting here to see that Paul compares these false teachers, the, the, the effect of these false, teach, false teachers as savage wolves. Here in verse 29, savage wolves will come in. And I don't know if you've ever seen the damage a wolf can do, but they can be savage, can't they? I remember a time when I was up in northern, living in northern Minnesota, and on the back of my 40, I was out working at night in the yard, and uh, I could hear from the distance uh, the howl of a wolf, and then over here another one, and then over here another one, and pretty soon, I don't know, there was five, six, seven of them howling, coming together. And I assumed as they came together they were on a trail of a, of a deer, which I later discovered they did kill. And, um, you know, sound carries at night. And I'm about the middle of my 40s, so they're about 20 acres away, whatever that is, uh, across my field at the ed edge of the woods. And, and right straight north of me, they, uh, they stopped. And I could hear the snarling and snapping. And I don't know if I could hear bones crunching, but it was. My dog went and hid in the house, and I followed him in. And so it was time to put my tools away. I'm going in for the night. Savage. Well, that's the illustration Paul uses in regards to false teachers. Now, I'm not saying this the Bible way. That false teaching has a savage effect. It has a destructive effect on people. Whether it comes from without or if it comes from the perversion, which means the twisting of the word of God, from within. Because the most important things in our lives is for us to know our creator. Because he created us for his glory and for our good. And God is a God who has eternal plans for those who come to him in faith of, his of experiencing his goodness and his grace, plans that are free from pain and sorrow and sickness and his eternity in heaven. And, and the message that brings us to that point, that opens that door, is the message of the cross, of the Jesus' love for us. God so loved the world, that means you and I, that he died for us to rescue us from this savagery. Because the Bible says in John 10 that the thief comes to kill, to steal, and destroy. And that's Satan. And the false messages. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And when the Bible is twisted, mistaught, neglected, contradicted, it prevents people from knowing 
the Creator. This prevents people from experiencing an eternal glory in the future. There was a period of time in Israel's history when, when the, the nation had got gotten away from their God, and it was led, led that direction by their pastors, their shepherds, their teachers. And it says this in Jeremiah 23, verses 1 and 2. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord of God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people. You have scattered my flock, driven them away, and not attended to them. Behold, I will tend to you for the evil of your doings, says the Lord. You see, false teaching or neglect of the word of God scatters. It destroys. It brings spiritual destruction to our lives. Let's look at another passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, as we get a handle on what Paul uses such harsh language, calling people enemies of the cross, we'll see why he does that. Here in 2 Corinthians 11, he's talked, he addresses the, the false teachers that had fec- affected the church at Corinth. And he says this in verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 11, but I fear, he says, they, they brought him fear, lest somehow as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. That's his concern. His concern isn't the fact that his organization grows and his following grows and his popularity grows. He's concerned for them, that they'll be, that they'll be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And that's the gospel message. It's a simple message, isn't it? Well, and that's why Jesus himself says, unless you have faith like a little child, you can't enter heaven. It's childlike faith in which, by which we come to Jesus and trust him as the one who died for our sins. And it's simple, and Paul's concerned. He goes on to say, verse 4, for if he who comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Now he's being sarcastic. You have put up with it. In other words, you have, you have put up with these false teachers who are, according to this verse, preaching a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. That was his concern. Sometimes when we look around at Christendom, we think if somebody carries any kind of religious resemblance, that they're okay. And that's not what the Bible says. We have to test every preacher, including this one, every teacher, by thus says the Lord. Are they true to the word of God? That's, that's the test. Because it's only the word of God that, will, that taught truly that can bring people to Christ. It's only the word of God taught, taught simply and truly that can grow people to know and love their Savior. In fact, he goes on here in chapter 11, down further in the chapter, verse 13, to talk about these, these same enemies of the cross. In verse 13, he says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. What he's saying is they're using deception. They appear religious. They appear upright. And verse 16 says, And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, there's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into the ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. And so he says one of Satan's chief tools to keep us from the cross is, is religious deception. Someone has said, and I mentioned this before, that the, right, the best rat poison is 99% sugar, isn't it? I don't know if that proportion is right, but we'll throw that out there. Lots of sugar and poison to, to make it appetizing. 
And sometimes Satan uses a, a biblical garb, a religious garb, to draw people in to the false teaching to keep people from the cross because that's his objective. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. Satan is not interested in our well-being. In John chapter 10, where that verse is located, it's a verse about the good shepherd. Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. But the bad shepherd destroys. He's not interested in our well-being. He simply wants to keep people from knowing Christ. One more over just one book, Galatians chapter 1, where... You know, Paul really doesn't mince words. Galatians 1, verse 6 says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you to the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. It's not really another gospel. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert or twist the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we, as we have said before, I'm going to say it again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. And Paul includes himself in there. He's in there not including himself. He says the important thing is that we preach the biblical gospel. And he says, you're turning from the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which means you're turning from the concept of grace, God giving us salvation freely and unconditionally, to a gospel of works that says you can earn your way to heaven. This is a serious consideration. Especially as we live in a day and age in which, you know, the mantra of the day is tolerance, supposedly. Unless you disagree with people, then you're not tolerated. But technically, we're supposed to be tolerant of others, aren't we? To be otherwise is to be bigoted. Well, I would say the most important one to be tolerated, or be, to, be, to be right with, is God. And God doesn't tolerate uh, that which contradicts his person and his word. He does extend grace. Jesus saves the sinners. Jesus died for the ungodly. He saves those who, he, 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 any who will come to him. He wanted mercy for those who hung him on the cross. But there's one message that saves. And any admixture of work, self-effort, nullifies grace and perverts the gospel of Christ. Let's go back to Philippians chapter 3. And, that, and that's why there's such direct and harsh language from our perspective used. God is simply saying it as it is. This is, this is something worth warning people about. It's no, di it's no different than, than the warnings, the physical warnings we give people about drug abuse, about rescuing someone from a burning building. Whatever the case may be, there are times we warn people about things. We warn our children about things. But God's warning is about something that's destructive to us and has eternal ramifications. And that's the enemies of the cross, those who contradict salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. And he goes on in verse 19 then to describe the, the example of these people. Because remember, we're talking in verse 17, the example of the apostles and their mission and his missionary teams, those who God had sent to them. And in verse 19, he, 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 he identifies their example when he says, whose end is destruction, number one. Secondly, whose God is their belly, number two. Number three, whose glory is in their shame. And number four, who set their mind on earthly things. This is what they're about. He says, first of all, he identifies their end is destruction. He mentions no words. This is not another message that saves. Their end is destruction. And even today, the most pious and religious zealots that, that the world often lauds over and respects are hellbound if they embrace the wrong gospel. I don't care how much good they've done, because salvation is not by our works. It's through faith alone in Christ alone. In fact, we just saw that testimony earlier in chapter 3 
and we won't go over it again, but Paul says, I count all everything that I, that I prided myself in because Paul was a top drawer religious guy. He says, I counted up a loss. In fact, he says, I counted up but refuse that I might win Christ. It was worthless. And so the end of that, even though they may be sincere, the end of that sincerity, if it's in the wrong, if their faith is in the wrong object, is destruction. And by the way, it brings destruction not only eternally, but also physically in life because there's no power in the gospel that works. There's power in the cross of Christ, power to help and heal and save. Second thing he says whose God is their appetites. Now that word is, it means the word belly. Some of your versions might use the word belly. The um, folks in those days felt this, this, that terminology represented the inner man of a person. And, and what he's re- referring to is the appetites of the flesh. Those are those appetites of the inner man. Things that, uh, things that are, we describe as our fleshly desires. Living for money and power and pleasures. Our appetites of the flesh. And it speaks of their motivation. And actually becomes their appeal. That's their orientation. And we see in this talk, in this, in this, in this, these, this verse, that their orientation is to the kind of having your best life now. Because the next, verse, next phrase says, whose glory is in their shame. What's their shame? Well, those things that, that are identified in the previous phrase. Living for their fleshy desires. They're shameful, God says. You know, the Bible tells us in 1 John 2 that there are three categories of lust. There's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Three different categories of lust, evil desires that we, that we express as people. It's common to us all. It's just the way it is. But God doesn't want us to live for them. God wants to deliver us from them. It's shameful to promote them. And that often becomes the appeal to people to find teaching that promotes what they already lust for and long for. And he says, and that's what they glory in. That's what they boast in. And when they do that, often they thereby bring attention to themselves. I remember seeing one prosperity preacher. He stopped in the middle of a message speaking about his, uh, his prosperity and said, Mom, I'm not doing too bad for myself, am I? As if that's what God wants for us, is to, is to, make, us, is, is to make us help us fulfill our fleshly desires. Well, he goes on to send, say that they set their mind on earthly things. They, they're seeking to find their best life now, so to speak. You know, and if that was the case, if we are here to have the, our best life now, to have lots of money, power, and pleasures, then the apostles didn't get it. Because the apostles and prophets and Jesus himself lived lives of poverty. They were rejected of men because they lived for the cause of Christ. And that's where the next phrase comes in to give the clarification to the right example. He says, for, for our citizenship is in heaven. He begins to refocus our attention to our true identity. You see, the unsaved man identifies with the things of this earth because, uh, because we have a nature who longs for these, the things of this, this life. The Bible calls it a sinful nature, a propensity to sin. We, call, we just call it the lust of the flesh. And Satan, we know, is the one who writes the menu for this world, and he knows how to appeal to us. We have an identification. We identify with this earth and what we do and how we live and the kind of people we are. But when we come to Christ, we have a new identity. We have a new citizenship. We are now Christian. Christ lives in us, and we have a new citizenship in heaven. And he says, for our. Paul includes them and, and, and himself. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are not 
tied to this world. Our, this is not our home. You know, we sing that song, and I don't know if we always know what it means when we sing it, and we sing this world's not my home, I'm just a passing through. It means that I have a new identity, a new home, a heavenly citizenship, and, and it's because our real home, our earthly home, is going to be dissolved, and our eternal home is, in reality, our forever home. Ever people say that? Oh, I think I've got my forever home. We buy a home. This is going to be our forever home. Well, you know what our, the believer's forever home is? It's glory, because that's where we're going to spend millions of years compared to our 70, 80 here or whatever we might live. It's our eternal home. And Jesus is presently there, according to John 14, 2, preparing a place for us. And in the meantime, according to 2 Corinthians 5, we're, we're to be his ambassadors. We're here, as I've said many times, we're here on a mission, not on a vacation. We are not anchored to this earth. Our home is heaven. And we're here to represent that home, to tell people about our home, to tell people about our Savior and the way they can join us in that home forever and ever and ever, a place of glory and bliss and righteousness, free from pain, sorrow, and sickness, and so on. Our citizenship, our identification, our orientation is towards heaven. That's what we're looking forward to. From which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus. We eagerly wait. He's coming back. We call it the rapture of the church. He's returning for his own to take us to be with him. And that anticipation that he's saying here has an effect on us. It's mentioned in a few of the rapture passages, as we call them. In 1 John 3, 3, it says, And everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. You see, just having a heavenly mindset and heavenly anticipation is, has an effect on us. Just like following the false teachers and having an earthly orientation and an appeal to the flesh has an effect on people. It brings destruction and despair to their lives. But our heavenly hope brings a heavenly orientation and helps us to live for the things of God. And if we have this hope, according to 1 John 3, 3, in him, we purify himself just like Jesus is pure. It's our desire is to be like him. 1 Thessalonians 4, 18, after talking about the rapture, it says, therefore comfort one another with these words. It brings comfort to know that someday we're going to go to be with the Lord and, and, this, and this, the hassles of this life will soon be past. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, another rapture passage concludes with this. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That means we're here to work. We're here to be steadfast. We're here, we're here to stand for the things of Christ and to abound in his work. And so, and so the, what Paul does is set up before us the right example, the right orientation is a heavenly orientation. It's an orientation to the, to the return of our Savior, our heavenly hope. He's going to return in verse 21. When he does, there's a heavenly anticipation. He's going to transform our lowly bodies that it may be conformed to his glorious body. There's going to be a transformation when we, when we go to be with the Lord Jesus, when he comes for his own. We're going to, 1 John 3 says, when we see him, we're going to be like him. So we're not only, only going to escape, get away from the, this earth which is cursed, but we're going to be delivered from this body, which is under the curse. We're going to be freed from the nature of sin, which brings destruction in our lives. Because we're going to have a body like his, his glorious body. And notice he says, according to the working by which he's able even to subdue all things to himself. Now, I think that's an important phrase. This idea that God has the power to subdue all things to himself, because that's what God is doing. You see, at the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned, Men became lost to God. They became sinners, separated from God. 
this earth became, was put under a curse. And if you think there's times in life that you see the beauty of nature, and you do, hopefully, as you observe the world around you, that's nothing compared to what the Garden of Eden must have been before the curse. In fact, Romans 8 tells us that the whole world, the whole creation is under travail, waiting for the liberation of the sons of God, waiting for this day of freedom from the curse. And what God is doing is he's subduing all things, bringing them back under his domain, direction, rule, and rightness with him. And that started with the cross, to rescue people from eternal hell. It continues in our lives when he seeks to rescue us from the, from the enslaving power of sins in our lives, and it's going to continue in the future when he restores even our bodies to a glorified state. That's where we fit in his rescue program, in his, in his desire to subdue all things, to bring it, to be, bring it back to a right relationship with himself, and someday we know he's going to even burn this earth up and create a new heavens and new earth, which will be the completion of his subduing of his rescue plan. Because that's the kind of God we have. He's seeking to rescue. People sometimes think of God as a God who just wants to judge us. Just as always out of condemning. He's not. He's a God of grace and love and glory that wants to rescue humanity and all creation from the, from the effects of sin. And he's able to do it. He says, according to the power. He's able. He's able. He will accomplish it. And on that basis, he says in chapter 4, verse 1, which goes, that verse goes a little better with this portion of Scripture, it says, therefore, or continues the thought, my beloved, those Paul loves and serves, he longs for them, he calls them his joy and crown, stand fast in the Lord, my beloved. He returns to the thought of verse 17. Join with me in living faithfully in the pursuit of Jesus Christ. And in verse 4, he returns to that because we are a heavenly people. We, have, we, we are people of the risen Savior. We're here to represent him. We have the power of God within us. We have a glorious future ahead of us. And in the meantime, God wants us to join him in pressing towards the mark. That's where we left off last couple of weeks, isn't it? This one thing I do to pursue the things of God in my life so I could affect others and bringing them to know Christ. Let's pray. Father, we covered a lot of ground here in these verses this morning. Some glorious truths, Father, about not only about the people you send into our lives, Father, that are meant to teach us and to lead us to be an example, the people that, that, that admonish and lift us up and encourage us, Father. And Father, we pray those things would be true of even each of us as a church family, that our fellowship with one another would be uplifting in pointing people to Christ. But Father, thank you that you've not only saved us and delivered us from eternal hell, Father, you not only have given us power to, be, to be live victorious over this present evil world, but, Father, you have a glorious future for us. We have a heavenly hope and a heavenly anticipation of a return of our Savior and a new existence and a new body free from the curse of this world. Thank you, Father, for those things. In the meantime, Father, may we stand fast. May we join with the faithful. May we have with a whole heart pursue you in our lives that we might grow to be like you and that we might serve you effectively. So, Father, encourage our hearts. Help us live out our identity in Christ as your heavenly people, we pray in Jesus' name.